1: What dignifies the yogic practices is that the belief system itself is not truly religious. There is no Buddhist god per se, it is the self, the individual mind that contains immortality and ultimate truth. What the hell is not religious about that? You've simply replaced God with the original self. Yes, but we've localized it. At least to know where the self is, it's in our own minds. It's a form of human energy. Our atoms are six billion years old. We've got six billion years of memory in our minds. Memory is energy. It doesn't disappear. It's still in there. That's a physiological pathway to our earlier consciousnesses there has to be and I'm telling you it's in the goddamn limbic system you're a wacko what's wacko about it, Mason? I'm a man in search of his true self how archetypically American can you get? (laughs) everybody's looking for their true selves we're all trying to fulfill ourselves Understand ourselves, get in touch with ourselves, face the reality of ourselves, explore ourselves, expand ourselves. Ever since we dispensed with God, we've got nothing but ourselves to explain this meaningless horror of life.
2: You're a wacko.
1: I think that that true self, that original self, that first self is a real, mensurate, quantifiable thing, tangible and incarnate. (laughs)
3: And I'm going to find the fucker. Happy Heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Ready once again to getting closer to finding your authentic self? You came to the right place because... This is blasphemy. This
2: is madness!
3: just miss I am you! on radio, An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, death to reality, and all those other predictions Plato made in his Allegory of the Cave. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? I'm so honored you are here as we continue to awaken together. Clark Emery said the awakening of an individual is a cosmic event. And I say the awakening of an individual is a cosmic rebellion. Backing me up, the almost canceled Orwell wrote, In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. If it
1: can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth.
3: In his recent and excellent article, The Hypostasis of the Farmers, Gordon White writes, Gnosticism is many things, but chief among them is a critique of power. Miguel regularly points out the Gnostics being the first punks. True, or the first anarchists.
1: Where there is fire,
3: we
2: will carry gasoline. It's better to burn
1: out than to fade away.
3: In the Apocalypse of Adam, the Sethians referred to themselves as the kingless tribe, the one that didn't worship the demiurge, unlike the 12 tribes of Israel and the 13th tribe that was Christianity. In other texts, the Sethians call themselves the generation without a king moral of the eternal story, and that one point in time humanity is stuck in regardless of what the hologram shows us, is this. Tribes are fine, it's their kings that have a habit of starting wars and creating imaginary enemies from those who are different. Fuck the kings. It's bad enough we're in the Black Iron Prison, fucking Malkuth, where men have nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Yet we have each other, and we awaken, and we rebel with the truth, and we bring down the Archons and the thirteen corrupt tribes with their kings. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Yes, we are the generation without a king, those eternal anarchists and punks. At the same time, as Gordon writes, We are the carriers of the eternal and watery light of the Pleroma, the plasmate of Philip K. Dick, the great life of the Mandeans, or the breath of Zoe, Greek for life. In the Gnostic Gospels, Zoe is the self-actualized Eve and an avatar of Sophia that can dissolve all that is false and temporal. As Gordon further writes, it is the imposition of power over others that is archonic. The belief that you can improve creation, that you know better than the people living their lives how to do so. Life binds the demiurge. Life binds and defeats the will to power and control. More than that, the breath of life. Zoe's breath is the angel that binds spirit derives from the Latin for breath. So it is life and flow that sends the Demiurge to hell. That is the thing it is powerless against. If you fail to see that your activism is cosmic and most extant versions of it go out of their way to disavow that fact then you cannot but replicate the empire. You cannot but replace the tyrant with another tyrant. So interrogate your activism, protest from a place of life, not a jealousy of the Empire's power, situate your emancipation in the entirety, not mere matter. Do not meet hate with hate, but with life. Do not dismiss the fronts your allies battle on. And every time you are tempted to react in a way that might make the entirety worse rather than better. Pause a moment and just listen, in case you hear the eternal warning. You are mistaken, Samael. That is a line in the Gnostic Gospels, what Pista Sophia told her son Yaldibaldi, when he said there are no gods but him. We continue to awaken and rebel, for we have no king, but we are the carriers of the breath of Zoe.
0: What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. values of the
1: individual against the supremacy of the state. Aren't you afraid? I would be,
3: if it weren't for Firebright. That's how I refer to the plasmatic entity within me. But they won't desert us. So just as you and I have housed
0: and sheltered them, they'll take us along with them into eternity. What they value is the attempt, not the achievement or the ultimate result. They judge us by our intention, by our hearts.
3: In this Eternal Now, as always, we have the pleasure of being joined by Gary Greenberg, a singular mind with singular religious ideas for many years. He comes to the virtual Alexandria to discuss his latest book, The Case for a Proto-Gospel. Beyond absorbing fantastic scholarship, our interview will detail the unique and Gnostic spirituality of the Gospel of John.
1: Finally, they determine Christ is crazy, but he's also gaining power, converting a lot of people to his beliefs, so they kill him. But his disciples keep the secret and hide it from civilization until man could develop a science sophisticated enough to prove what Christ was saying.
3: Yes, it's no secret that the Gnostics were the first to write expositions on the 4th gospel, specifically the Valentinian Heraclon, and that it was believed that the Gnostic Serinthus was the actual author. It's no secret too that Jesus in that scripture is closer to the concert of Sophia from Valentinian thought than he is to the Orthodox Jesus. This Jesus says, I am a lot. And it's actually your divine self remembering its true state and declaring, I am to the darkness that knows you not. And
2: heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is, is within us?
1: All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us.
3: As Stephen Davis wrote on the Gnostic Jesus, the Savior is not a celestial being brought to earth. The Savior is a capacity of the mind. And the Savior's journey from above is actually one's own inside journeying from within. And as the late and great Marvin Meyer wrote in the Gnostic Bible, The role of the Gnostic Savior or Revealer is to awaken people who are under the spell of the Demiurge. Not, as in the case of the Christ of the Emerging Orthodox Church, To die for the salvation of people, to be a sacrifice for sins, or to rise from the dead on Easter. The Gnostic Revealer discloses knowledge that frees and awakens people and that helps them recall who they are. You ever have that feeling
1: where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming?
3: Mind you, The world hates Jesus in the Gospel of John because he is the one without an earthly king, the self-actualized Adam, and the concert of Zoe, the bringer of the greater life to a dying universe ruled by wickedness in high places.
1: This is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who.
3: I should mention that in Gordon's The Hypostasis of the Farmers, He says that Gnosticism is the map and animism is the territory. I would say that the Manichaeans are that Gnosticism that became animism, as they are some of history's most eco-friendly, pacifist and elegant religious movements. To the Manichaeans, everything was alive and the divine light was present in everything. The Manichaeans created a global religion of high standards and compassionate behavior, understood better the idea of a global and kingless brotherhood. Of course, the world hated them for that. They were wiped out. We're
1: all the devil's children. We find what powers the sun and we make bombs of it. We achieve power and we go mad. We always destroy. But
3: here we are, in 2020. We carriers of the breath of Zoe, going strong and showing the world we are better. This time we have the laughter of Hermes on our side, and the tears of Sophia caressing our cheeks. Beneath this mask there is an idea, Mr.
0: Creedy,
2: and ideas are bulletproof.
3: But enough of my drivel. (laughs) Let us to the interview with Gary Greenberg. As a bonus for Patrons and AB Prime members, beyond the full interview, I'll add Gary's interview on his book, The Judas Brief, where he shows how the Gospels were changed to make the Romans look good and all the Jews look bad.
0: What have the Romans ever done for us?
3: Ah, the Empire never ended, and always gets the best fake news editors. Those victors that write history and those vicars who modify holy texts.
1: To work it out for yourself. Yes! We've got to work it out for ourselves! Exactly! That's that's no! That's the point! Don't let anyone tell you what to do! Otherwise, I'll know! There was a time above. A time before. There were perfect things. Diamond absolutes, things fall, things on earth, and what falls, is fallen. In the dream, they took me to the light, a beautiful lie.
3: This is the AM Byte, and as always, we definitely have the pleasure and the honor of being joined by Gary Greenberg, a past guest who has always brought so so many enlightening topics and research and scholarship here at the show, and he joins us to discuss his latest book, The Case for a Proto-Gospel. Gary, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure. And... Your book, woo! This book is a spanning book. It's uh, so so much detail, so much research. I was thinking, God, I I, I really hope I. Uh, I was I was thinking of your 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 days when you were in law. I was thinking, God, I hope I'm glad I was never on the other side of you because you would have buried <laughs> me. You bring so much data to it. <laughs> so, why did you decide to write this book?
2: It was a long-term project, actually, with other things coming out that interrupted it along the way. It was uh, started several years ago, um, probably due to my reading. My I don't know if you remember my book or did my book, uh, The Judas Brief.
3: Yes, you were on the show for that. Yes, indeed.
2: Right. And, uh, you know, that was my first, uh, substantive study of the interrelationship of the gospel's history and so forth. I mean, I'd done other work on it, but, and it was then that I began to see a lot of connections that didn't seem consistent with what a lot of the people were saying. And so one thing led to another. Uh, one of the problems, of course, is getting to a publisher. Uh, it was a very long book, as you can tell. And so at one point I actually extracted a portion of it, did some rewriting and had a publisher release, uh, not quite that study, but a much significantly shorter study, uh, called Proving Jesus' Authority in Mark and John. And, uh, but then I continued to work on this and, uh, finally it came together.
3: Good deal. And uh, when, again, the thesis is that there was a proto-gospel behind all four gospels, so was there a time when a, a light bulb went out? Or um, not went out, a light bulb went on, and you said, wait a second, I have a, a different theory about all of what scholarship thinks.
2: Well, you start off realizing that there's an awful lot of material that scholars are just not paying attention to. And some of it, you begin to realize that once you have a working theory and a a methodology, you begin to realize they're ignoring a lot of things that they ought to pay attention to. And uh, so you start putting these things together. The first stage is the standard one is Did John know the Synoptic Gospels? Did he know Mark, Luke, or Matthew, or more than one of them? And that's the only question scholars tend to get into. And up until very, very recently, the general position is that John did not know any written version of the Gospels, the other Gospels. He may have heard traditions, he may have been familiar with the story here and there, but his gospel is so different from the other gospels that it's not likely he used a written version. He just knew some of the stories through tradition, oral tradition, and whatever. And that was an almost universal opinion about John's gospel. Uh, There's a handful of scholars now starting to move away from that. You know, it's not even a movement yet, but there are a couple of scholars, prominent scholars, who are just saying we need to start to take a look. But they're still doing it from the wrong perspective because the standard way you try to work the Gospels out as to their relationship is words. Uh, are they using the same words? Uh, Are they following the same sequence in any significant way? And when you look at John, you don't see a lot of the words that you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you tend to be discouraged about finding a link. But my insight was what turned the whole thing around was John has a different theology than the other Gospels. And the other Gospels are an affront to his theology. So what I started to do was, if John doesn't agree with the other Gospels on theology, what is it about the other Gospels that he would find problematic, and how would he solve that problem? Um, And from there, you begin to see the connection. Uh, you start recognizing that there's a lot of things the scholars aren't paying attention to. No one, as far as I've ever, as far as I know, has ever done a study of John comparing the Synoptic Gospels with the detail I have done. I don't even think there's been a book written on it. There's been articles, there's been essays, there's been interviews, but nobody has published a full length study about the entire Gospel of John and how it overlaps with the uh, Synoptic Gospels. Uh, But the first stage you have to get past, and that's the main breakthrough, is John using Mark or Matthew or Luke as his source for the information, or is there an earlier source, and how can you show that he's not taking it from the other Gospels? So you've got to show not only that John, you know, I I announced three principles I got to basically do. One, I got to show that John actually knows lots of stories in the other three Gospels. Two, I got to show that he knows a lot of them in the same order as the other Gospels. And three, I've got to show, and this was the key, that he couldn't have gotten all these parallels by using the other Gospels. So part of the the academic approach is first find where there are agreements in theme rather than words, although there's a lot of places where the words are there, too. And if you can find that, then you can start opening up. Once you understand John's theology, you then have a key to identify almost everything in the other, any of the other Gospels to see if he's using them as a source or not. Because you'll know, if you look at Mark, which is the primary target here, because he was the first Gospel, and you know when you read a story in Mark and you now can say to yourself, okay, John's going to object to A, B, C, and D, then you have to ask, what would John do to overcome a b c and d and then you go to john and you look in john and say is there anything in john that looks like it's overcoming a b c and d but dealing with the same theme as the story in mark and that's the big breakthrough and what we learn is that this earlier gospel contained almost the entire adult life story of jesus Um, with the exception of speeches uh, and that kind of stuff. But the actual incidents in Jesus's life, almost all of them come from this earlier gospel. And John knew this earlier gospel, which is basically Mark's source. Mark took it from the earlier gospel. And that's one of the problems scholars have. They don't know how to get from Something that from the Jesus movement to Mark's gospel, they don't have a source for him. Did he make it up? You know, where is he getting it from? So I show that if Mark had to have had this source and that John had to know the source and not Mark. And uh that was how the thing came together over time. And then once you understand it, a lot of the things make sense in ways no one has thought about.
3: I would agree. And for the audience, it's an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive research. Gary has about 600 pages, and it's a a very compelling case. And Gary, can we infer or theorize what this proto gospel community or theology might have looked like? Was it closer to Mark at the beginning? Or are we still, I guess, like the Q community, we still don't, we're just, high, you know, speculating?
2: right um it's nothing like that i mean in the book i recreate as much of the gospel as i can in thematic ways incident by incident uh but because john doesn't always use the words that appear in mark or luke and those are the two i compare with matthew doesn't appear to be familiar with the earlier one but he knows mark um Once you start looking at the uh, the, that Mark is taking it from a source, what you see is Mark is probably making amendments to a source. So Mark is putting his gospel as slight revisions of the original, this earlier source. Um, But the earlier source was basically someone put together a story of Jesus at a time earlier than any of the other Gospels. And there are actually a couple of hints in the book, uh, although it can't be proven yet, but there's suspicions based on a couple of comparisons I do, that this proto-Gospel may have been written before Paul's letters.
3: Oh, wow. That is early.
2: Yeah. So what we're basically dealing with is a story that isn't fully formed but in some senses, it's coming closer to the time frame and the history for the movement than the later gospels, which are often off the wall on the history.
3: Yes, they are. And does this, in your opinion, change the dating of the synoptics and John as traditionally known? Mark, then Luke and Matthew, and then John somewhere far off, or, or are you still sticking to the time?
2: Well, not exactly. John has at least two stages, um, maybe three according to another prominent scholar of development. So it's possible there was an early stage that might have preceded, but we don't really know. We just know that there's layers in John, uh, at least one original version and a later redaction. But even the redaction shows knowledge of the early uh, gospel.
3: Very interesting. And uh, what do you think about the the Q theory? That's kind of fallen out of favor with scholars, or does that matter?
2: Well, it hasn't fallen out of favor. Uh, There's just a small active group that's got more support for its now than they used to have but q is still the overwhelming theory i don't take a position on q Um, q is mostly a sayings source and uh, i'm only interested in the non-saying aspects so i can't say there doesn't seem to be a significant connection between q and the proto gospel because like I say, it's non-anecdotal, except a little bit with uh, John the Baptist, maybe. Um, so, But so I'm neutral on the role of Q. It could be Luke making use of Matthew, which is the main alternative, or it could be an actual source that Matthew and Luke are both using. But it's not necessary to resolve that to get to my uh, conclusions
3: makes sense and uh, i was thinking of the diatessaron by tatian in the second century are you familiar with that where he tries to harmonize all four gospels
2: yeah but that's an attempt that's where a lot of i think christianity christian history and theory and theology starts really going bad um the goal becomes after john Even though it's significantly contradictory in theology to the other gospels in a lot of ways, how can we say all the gospels are part of the same intellectual theological stream? And how can we make sure every story unifies everything? And the problem is the gospels don't do that. And so they're trying to do the equivalent, in some sense, theological equivalent of squaring the circle which is something you just can't logically do. So they come up with a lot of internally inconsistent theologies and declarations and confessions and all sorts of stuff.
3: Yes, they did. And uh a question also I wanted to ask you, and I've never asked you this, even though oh, we've done two or three shows just on the four Gospels, you and I. But mm-hmm. um you never mention anything about the Gnostic texts. And I, of course, the answer when I ask scholars is that uh, it's still widely believed that the so-called Gnostics, Gospel of Thomas and all those, are second century, so they really don't carry that much weight. Yet, until we have more evidence that they might be earlier, what is your stand on this?
2: I haven't done enough looking into the uh, the uh, Gnostic materials uh, to come to any kind of an opinion. I haven't read a lot of them. Um, the close I did at one point in connection with after my book on Judas came out, the Gospel of Judas. And what was clearly obvious to me, and I discussed it with April DeConnick, uh if you know who she is, who writes a lot about the... Yeah,
3: she's been on uh, the show several times, yes. Yeah.
2: And it was my view that the Gospel of Judas is a parody of the Gospel of Mark that it's making fun of the gospel of Mark.
3: Really? Wow, what an interesting... I know April takes the stance that it's a very negative gospel and Judas is basically an evil guy, unlike other people like Marvin Meyer and Karen Kings. But uh, Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. You saw it as a a parody of the gospel of Mark.
2: Yeah. And uh, one of the things that... You know, the problem part, I guess, with some of the uh, Gnostic material, is a lot of what we know about the Gnostics comes from the antagonistic arguments of the other side. And so we lack credibility to the text because they may have been altered or distorted or misrepresented in a lot of the uh, heretical accounts of the gospel, of these uh, other texts. Um, But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that I'm aware of, only because I get it secondhand here, that any of these uh, Gnostic texts move into any earlier into the uh, first century than maybe contemporary with John. Uh, But it is possible that around the time of John, you might at least be seeing movements toward the uh, Gnostic views, um, but I, if it had happened earlier, I think you'd be seeing some sort of counter-remarks in either uh, in any of the other Gospels, just sort of trying to, even if it's not a direct remark, it might be like a statement so that it would be read as an opposition to a Gnostic position
3: yeah so you're talking about like uh the letter of john talks about uh it's uh polemic against docetism and the antichrist might be might be talking about the gnostics but that's probably second century already yeah and also since we're on the gospel of john and this is important uh the jesus in the gospel of john is obviously very different um, he as as you write gary has complete authority he is above the law and uh yeah he's almost a god man who's in control of the entire narrative from beginning to end which is very different from the gospel of mark uh, do you have anything to say about the, the that's important to know about the jesus in the gospel of john versus the jesus in the gospel of mark even though they know each other
2: well there are a number of number of things to discuss but One of the conclusions I reached, which is part of, a, I suppose, an ongoing kind of side debate among a lot of gospel scholars, is whether John is the most anti-Jewish gospel or the most pro-Jewish gospel. Um, I mean, John very rarely is thought of as a pro-Jewish gospel. But in fact, it's my argument, uh, although I don't get into it as an argument in the book. I offer some examples of why, but I don't discuss whether he's anti-Jewish in the book. But John's thesis is John's gospel takes the position that the whole passion account is an acting out of God's plan. God has called all the shots. Nobody is acting on their own accord there. If Satan went into Jesus, into Judas, because God sent them into Judas. God is playing the whole thing. And John basically says in a key passage that totally throws the other gospels out the window is that The reason the priests wanted to kill Jesus is because he was popular, so popular, the Romans would want to tear down the temple and destroy the Jewish nation, and that they could save the Jewish people if they get rid of this one person. It was because the Romans wanted him dead. This is in direct opposition to the Synoptic Gospels led by Mark, that the priests were jealous of Jesus because his popularity made him a threat to their rule. John takes that on in many, many ways head-on, and he says very clearly that that's not true. He, he rewrites the entire Passion account in many ways in the synoptics to take jealousy out of it. Jesus was not looking to be a rival to the uh, priests, that's all wrong in John's gospel. John makes very clear Jesus is not an earthly rival. Jesus is heaven sent, and he has no interest in governing anything on earth. He's just delivering a message. If you believe that God sent me to tell you how to get eternal life, you'll get eternal life. That's all he's interested in. And he has no plan to be an earthly leader. The synoptics portray the priests as fearing him as a rival to be an earthly leader. Um, one of the ways this is shown, I mean, there's a lot of ways it's shown, aside from the fact that John directly says this, uh, that 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 distinguishes why the priests wanted to kill Jesus. Um if you look at the so called triumphal entry. Um, In Mark, in in the synoptics, Jesus is riding the donkey towards Jerusalem and being hailed by the crowds. In a lot of ways, this is the um, uh, reminiscence of Solomon's taking the throne away from his chief rival on the advice of David's advisors. Uh, who was told to get a donkey, get on the donkey, get a lot of people cheering for you, and then ride up and claim the throne. So the people at the time, if they knew this story, if they read this story, they'd see the synoptic Jesus as reenacting Solomon's seizing of the earthly throne. Um, and Jesus being hailed as a king and so on, and all and throughout in the several instances. John attacks that. John has one instance where someone wants him to be a king and he pulls away. The crowd tries to take him at one point and say, We want you to be king. And John, Jesus pulls himself away and goes away from them. So there's a very stark contrast. And if you take John's message, then he the the synoptics are far more anti-Jewish than the Gospel of John. And uh, the big rap on John is this one passage, uh, I think it's John 9, where John accuses the Jews of being the children of the devil, and a liar like the devil, and so on. And this is considered a terrible, terrible assault on the uh, Jews. I deal a lot with that in one of my chapters, but in context, I don't think it's any more uh anti-Jewish than the Q passage about the Jews have killed all the prophets throughout history and that all the blood is on their hands for killing every prophet and they're going to kill Jesus. I think that's terribly anti-Jewish and it's not John. Um, so I think you have a lot of places where you can make the case that John... And, and as I point out in the book, John is only doing that in reaction to a story in which the Jews accuse Jesus of working with the devil. So, if the Jews are theoretically are accusing Jesus of working with the devil. How is it any worse for the Jesus to say, "No, you're working with the devil"? Just turn the charge around, <laughs> yeah. which is what he's doing in that story. Uh, that story is really a reaction to the one where he's accused of uh, acting with the devil
3: fascinating and for the audience as an audio bonus i'm going to put our interview on gary's book the judas brief uh, where it shows how the romans were absolved and the jews were slowly blamed throughout uh, in the synoptics and throughout history fascinating interview still very important gary when let's say jesus in the gospel of john is saying the jews Isn't he meaning Judeans? He's not talking about Jews at, uh, I don't know, Alexandria. I mean, isn't there, that's how the lines are? I mean, I know a lot of, they didn't like the Judeans.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate goes on what is meant by the term Judean. You got to remember that the territory was called Judah. And it was a province of Syria. And the term used, Iudeans uh, in Greek, is nothing more than a grammatical uh, form of an ethnic group, meaning like so-and-so. So uh, when you're calling someone uh, Judeans, you're saying people who act like the people of Judah. Uh, and that's true of other ethnic groups grammatically in Greek. Uh, there's a clear parallel. And so he's using it, as far as I can tell, as simply the kind of leadership that the high priest, the priestly class, the, maybe the Sadducees and others are providing. They are the officials. And because if you look at John's gospel, it's frequently, he frequently displays debates between the Jews. In the country, you know he shows John never takes on legal arguments because he's above the law and he doesn't want to pretend that he has to obey the law so whenever he frequently has instances where the Jews are debating the issues rather than him um and you get one side saying one thing and the other side saying the opposite. So he's clearly showing a lot of Jews debating back and forth. So he obviously doesn't mean all Jews by Judeans.
3: And I'm sure in those days we could make the comparison that the Judeans in Jerusalem were like, I don't know, somebody like you in New York or me when I was in Chicago. We're the city folk. And the Galileans and Samaritans and all that were sort of the country bumpkins who we ruled over or, you know, less well, culture than not, us.
2: not quite. No? Uh, okay. No, I think it would be maybe like referring to the, uh, well, maybe Chicagoans or, and yeah, meaning the mayor and the city council and.
3: Oh, yeah, the corrupt. Yeah. Well, talk about corrupt.
2: Yeah. I mean you gotta pass a corruption test, I think, to get elected. And isn't that a requirement on the statute? If you're not corrupt, you're not allowed to run for all. For
3: exactly. And the dead <laughs> will still vote for you no matter what, so you're fine. Yeah, in <laughs> alphabetic order. <laughs> so yeah, that's what they were dealing in those days. And another interesting part of your book is the way they portray the apostles. And maybe that's gives us some insight because As many know, the Jesus and Mark treats his apostles really bad. They're like, speaking of country bumpkins, like they're just idiots. And uh, you wonder why Marcion was like, oh, these apostles are terrible. I'm going to go with Paul because they're all idiots. But John doesn't do that. I wonder why.
2: Okay, well, John, right, part of uh, an important part of the theology involved in John's analysis of the Gospels, of the other the proto gospel, which is... For all practical purposes, Mark, but not perfectly Mark. Um, John looks at the apostles as Jesus' followers, his designated followers, although he doesn't do the apostle thing in the beginning of the book. Uh, he has followers, but he doesn't designate them apostles the way uh, the synoptics do. The, in the synoptics, you have the the. Early passage where Jesus calls everybody up on a hill and says, "I'm appointing you to be my apostles." John eliminates that passage. He never appoints people to be the apostles until the very end in his uh, final days, uh, you know, and his resurrection actually. And uh, so then, you, so you have the problem that John looks at these stories. Which I trace to the proto gospel, not to Mark, saying that the gospels didn't understand this, their hearts were hardened, they didn't get this, they didn't understand that. Peter made a terrible mistake in what the Messiah was. Peter, representing what would have been the normal understanding, thought of the Messiah as an earthly king, and Mark and the others. And Jesus reprimands them for that. Um, What John does and here's one of the ways you know John is using uh possibly something other than Luke is he rewrites the stories wherever the apostles are shown in a negative light i mean he does a total rewrite and an incredible amount of <laughs> yeah. work just rehabilitating peter uh from all the charges and he will sometimes substitute other people who make the same mistake the gospels are or the apostles are accused of making, but has them make the mistakes, and has Jesus reprimand these people who aren't the apostles uh for example, in the miracle of the loaves, um, Jesus uh reprimands all the apostles because they want bread and they didn't understand the meaning of the miracle, and so on and so forth, but in John. It's not the apostles who don't understand. It's a different set of witnesses. It was the people who ate the bread, who followed around, looked after John, uh, after Jesus to find him so they can get more bread. And so he accuses them of not understanding what's going on. Now, the thing is here that Luke does the same kind of thing. Luke is also, in almost every instance where uh, mark reprimands the apostles in one way or the other, changes the stories around and eliminates the reprimands or changes the contexts for example, in mark where in the bread incident where jesus says uh um, where is oh that you uh, your hearts are hardened, you don't understand oh, beware of the yeast of the uh Uh, the Pharisees, Um, and they don't understand that. Luke moves it into another location, takes it away from the apostles, and is accusing the and says it to a crowd. There are several instances where Luke has a very different way of saying, of changing Mark's stories. So why would, unless John So John couldn't have been using Luke as a source for a lot of the stuff in Mark, because he wouldn't know that Mark had made these accusations unless he knew Mark. So he wouldn't have been changing the stories that are in Mark in ways that are very different from Luke. So he had to have some evidence of the stories in Mark rather than Luke. That's one kind of clue you get.
3: Fascinating. And how do they differ? Do Mark and John differ in their view of the, quote, son of man?
2: It's not clear that they differ. And the son of man is a very problematic issue, because the only people who have used the term son of man are the gospel writers. Nobody else in the literature anywhere, uses Son of Man for all practical
3: purposes. But doesn't it appear in Daniel or am I having Well, a... the
2: closest you get is one like the Son of Man. Right. But we're not clear what that is or who that is or what he is or what he means and so on. And uh, the other problem is that Son of Man is a grammatical idiom used in Aramaic, which means human or I or a statement about I or, you know, substituting the individual when you say the son of man says this, it's like saying I say this or human says this. And the problem is we know that was used not long after the time of Jesus, but we don't have any Aramaic texts from the time of Jesus where the phrase appears. So what we have is a phrase that we know is used a little later to mean it's something very different from what it means in the gospels, but that the gospel writers have taken that phrase and given it a different meaning. Um, there's one instance in the book um, where um, I say, I think it's in the uh, one of the, where the apostles are violating the Sabbath by picking grain, where, Mark uses the term son of man in a context that doesn't make any sense for it to have the uh, meaning, the, the, the higher Christological meaning that he gives it, and makes much more sense if you use the Aramaic understanding. I don't think Mark knew the Aramaic understanding. I think he just took the term as it was in the source.
3: And the proto-gospel had the son of man concept here and there. Or yeah, the I, I'm pretty
2: sure it did um otherwise it wouldn't be in john because if john is independent of the other gospels why is he the only other source that uses that term several times in his gospel unless he's familiar with the term from somewhere else and if he didn't read the other gospels as they were being told uh then it must have come from the proto-gospel i that's one of the two phrases i use to say show some evidence of John's use of some earlier source. Um, but Mark's gospel, interestingly, rejects a messianic David. Um, he uses the Son of Man. There are two different kind of Messiah concepts, the uh, Davidic Messiah and the Son of Man Messiah. And there's a tendency to confuse them together a lot. But Mark only went with the Son of Man as the Messiah, not David's ancestor. Uh, David's descendant, he rejects the idea of a Davidic Messiah. And John, to some degree, seems to do the same thing. Um, In John, he shows some Jews debating over whether or not Jesus can be the Messiah. And in one of them, one of the debates, um, it says well, doesn't it say the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem, uh, meaning son of David, and, uh, and therefore he can't be the Messiah. And John offers no response to that. He leaves it hanging there, because in John's gospel, where Jesus comes from doesn't matter. Jesus came from heaven, not from any earthly position. So John and Mark actually agree with each other conceptually that there was no davidic messiah
3: fascinating and uh, you also write gary that there are discrepancies with all the gospels author's timing like the last supper the crucifixion the mysterious uh, or enigmatic day of preparation what does that yeah. tell us i know obviously as you write it tells us that these individuals the gospel authors all of them were probably outside of judea and were using a roman calendar
2: yeah the, the, i i think that's a really fascinating thing that's gotten no meaningful attention in gospel studies if you read the Gospels carefully, Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John are all using the Roman concept of the calendar. That is, the sun rises in the morning at the start of the day, and at the end, of, and the next day begins with the next sunrise. In the Jewish calendar, which is the one that would have been used in Judea when everything is going on, uh, the day starts in the evening and continues through the next daytime until the next evening. So, basically, half of a Jewish day overlaps half of a Roman day, and the other halves overlap different days. So, when they're talking about it was day or evening or whatever they're saying in the Gospels, there you you, you can see I analyze it and prove that's the case. For example, the. Going to the tomb early in the morning at the start of the Sabbath. Uh, well, in the Jewish calendar, that wasn't the start of the Sabbath, and nobody in Judea would be going in the morning as the start of the Sabbath. They'd be going in the evening as the, I mean, at the start of the day after the Sabbath, I'm sorry. They'd be going in the evening when the Sabbath just ended. I mean, why would they wait another half a day before going to the tomb? Uh, but, so the, the gospels are totally wrong about the calendar arrangements in the, in Judea. And it gets the, and that causes all kinds of confusion in trying to trace out the sequence of events, the three days rising and all sorts of stuff. Because the, the use of the Jewish calendar creates a different chronology.
3: Yes, you definitely make a good case for this. And again, you bring so much to the table from the crucifixion to the Last Supper and all the discrepancies and so forth. And uh, just so the audience know, you argue that Luke had no idea of John. But did Matthew, he knew of the proto-gospel, right? He's not just... No,
2: Luke, Luke knew the proto-gospel.
3: Luke, but he didn't know John
2: did not know John, and Matthew didn't know any of it, but he got most of his story from Mark.
3: All right. That makes sense.
2: So the proto-gospel goes to Matthew through Mark.
3: That makes sense.
2: And, you know, one of the things that the source studies have never gotten straight or figured out, and they're aware of it but don't want to pay any much attention to it, is that Luke has a lot of very, very obvious parallels to John. And they can't explain it. And they just let it hang there. They say, well, he must have known, or maybe they heard about it. (laughs) But when they start mounting up in large numbers, and I put a large number in there in the book, Uh, You have to start saying, this can't be right. This isn't just picking up casual conversations in an oral tradition. Many of these things are in sequences, uh, and he knows these things, and they're clearly in John, but not in Mark. Uh, You find a lot of that, and they just can't explain it. They try to figure out how Luke could have known something about John or how John could have known something about Luke, but they can't make a valid case for it to be true.
3: What would be one example just for the audience, Gary?
2: Well, I mean there's a lot of indications. Uh for example, in the uh in the Passion account, um, Pilate twice uh in Mark, uh the Jews call out to uh uh crucify Jesus. They use the term once. In Luke and John, when they call out the crucified Jesus, they use the term twice. Uh, in Mark, Pilate never makes a declaration that Jesus is innocent. In Luke and John, uh, Pilate makes three declarations that Jesus is innocent. Um, where is how is John and Luke coming to these things? There's many things throughout the gospel. One of the ones I found kind of amusing and interesting is John, Mark has a story about the paralytic on the mat. And in John's, in Mark's story, the crowd brings the paralytic, or the, mm-hmm. the four men bring the paralytic to Jesus' home. And there's a big crowd and they crawl on the, roof, they dig a hole, they drop lower them down, and so on, and Jesus is impressed with their faith and heals them. John places the story in Jerusalem in his version of the account, and again, this is a, there's a lot of debate over whether John's story is the same as Mark's, and I put a lot of evidence in on that. Too much to just summarize here. But so we have John putting it in Jerusalem. So you go to Luke, and Luke pretty much follows Mark's story with one major exception. Where did it take place? And why, if he's following Mark, why doesn't he just follow Mark's claim that it happened at the house of Jesus? But he doesn't. He says it happened in some unidentified village in which Pharisees from all over the country were gathering. Where would Pharisees be gathering from all over the country except in Jerusalem? He doesn't say it was Jerusalem. And this is one of the examples I give in the the book of where I think John is trying to strike a compromise through uh, ambiguity between Mark and the proto gospel.
3: Very interesting. and yeah, no, it should be noted too, which I uh, people always assume the Pharisees were sort of uh, the priesthood, but they weren't. They had uh, secular jobs. It wasn't a Pharisee like being the, a knight of Columbus or something like that.
2: No, it was a uh, it was a school of jo- Josephus, maybe in a stretch, calls it a, a school of philosophy. There were two major. Pharisee groups in the time of Jesus, two different houses, and in one study of the Pharisees, the author writes, you could be pretty sure if one Pharisee group said yes, the other Pharisee group said no. (laughs)
3: Like a family at Thanksgiving,
0: uh? (laughs)
2: huh? And then you have the, and then you have the Sadducees interacting with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees actually start off as a political group in the, in the Maccabean era. As do the Sadducees, and uh, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus were the champions of the poor, and the most. Uh, their reputation was as the most terrific interpreters of the Scripture, and they were so influential that even though the Sadducees controlled the courts and the priesthood and everything. When it came to the courts making rulings, the Sadducees had to follow the Pharisee point of view because they were just too popular. They just controlled those debates.
3: Indeed, and it's interesting why the gospel authors had to vilify them. Well, they vilified the Herodians, the
2: Well, they vilified the Pharisees, I think, because after the temple fell, Almost all the other groups got wiped out. And much of the Jerusalem Judean group got wiped out. I mean, the Jerusalem Christian group got wiped out, probably too. And uh, the surviving group were the Pharisees. So after the temple went down, the chief opponents of Christianity were the Pharisees. So you're getting the debates about the Pharisees based on what Pharisees were saying in the 70s and the 80s, not about what they were saying in the 30s and the 40s. I mean, there was absolutely nothing about Jesus that the Pharisees would have found objectionable.
3: Very interesting.
2: Indeed, even the Sadducees probably wouldn't have found very much objectionable. They may have disagreed with it, but they disagreed with the Pharisees also and the Essene. Disagreement was not a problem for Jews back then. Violent disagreement wasn't a problem. They were all Jews, as long as they (laughs) believed in the scripture.
3: Are you working on anything else these days?
2: Yeah. um, If you remember, there was a volume one to Genesis Chronology and Egyptian King lists.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. You were working on the second one when we last talked last year.
2: Mostly finished, almost finished with the first draft of the second one, which is just uh, an entirely fascinating new, imp- new view of everything going on that solves other puzzles that the Egyptologists haven't even figured out yet about the mythology of the gods in chronology terms.
3: Wow. well we certainly look forward to that one and uh, best of luck with this book but we are at the end gary i'd like to thank you very much for again gracing aeon Bygnostic radio and uh, good luck with everything you're doing and good luck with the case for a proto-gospel thank you and there you have it my beloved true seekers the first part of our interview with gary greenberg on his book The Case for a Proto-Gospel. Love independent, risk-taking, yet intelligent researchers like Gary. In our second part, we'll continue to deal with Lazarus and his mystery, and take a cool detour to some Egyptian mythology. We'll certainly take a look at the beloved disciple of the Gospel of John, and his own mysterious identity. Gary will explore the concept of the Logos and the very different God of the Gospel of John. Gary will speculate where the Gospel of John might have been written in. And yes, baby, we'll discuss Mary Magdalene and her role in various Gospels. Gary will share how his book has been received so far by scholarly and non-scholarly sources. And much, much more. As a bonus for Patrons and AB Prime members, beyond the full interview, I'll add Gary's interview on his book, The Judas Brief, where he shows how the Gospels were changed to make the Romans look good and all the Jews look bad. So please become an AB Prime member or Patron at Patreon for all of this heretical wonder and so many other cool bonuses and rewards, and to become part of a growing Gnostic community. We've only just begun here in the desert of the real. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. Please go to my homepage, the God Above God, Cam, for means to support, join, or just message my ass. Divided we stand, together we rise. We run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it. We write our own gospel and we live our own myth. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye, as always.